And that was another excuse to delay. Oh, I'm too busy with work. I don't have time for a girlfriend. Don't ask me about a relationship. <laughs> I think the big moments of coming out are to the ones that you care about the most, especially for Asian households. It doesn't need to be like sitting down at the dinner table and then uttering those words, I am gay. Um, getting behind uh, achieving same-sex marriage was important for the LGBT community as a whole, for sure. But I think for a societal progress was also very important. Hey everyone, welcome to the Eggnata podcast. I'm your host, Amy Chan. I also produce and edit this podcast. For this episode, I'm so happy to have Jay Lin with us. To me, Jay is a renaissance man. I mean, Newsweek did name him one of the top 15 innovators of 2019. He's such a visionary leader and I can't wait for him to talk about the work that he does. Welcome to the podcast, Jay. Thank you, Amy. I'm very happy to be on your Eggnana show and to be able to uh, reconnect with you because I think the last time we saw each other was over some Shalom Pao in Taipei. Yes, it was. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So to be very transparent, Jay is a friend I met in Taiwan when I lived there a few years ago. Um, And he's kind of a big deal. Uh, Someone I've always looked up to for all the activism work that he does when it comes to marriage equality and overall representation for the queer community. And I think I met you because I was writing an article about Cindy Alana's wedding uh, at Casa Loma in Toronto, which was a beautiful wedding to witness. Um, anyways, let's get started. Jay, can you introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Jay Lin. I am a Taiwanese American uh, and I moved to the U.S. to California when I was 10 years old from Kaohsiung, Taiwan. Uh, lived there for 20 years and uh, returned 16 years ago. So that was in 2004 uh, to Taiwan to start my company, Portico Media. And you mentioned that you moved to California as a kid, you went to Berkeley, and then you got a law degree. Tell me about childhood. Um, so I was the youngest of five. Um, I grew up in southern Taiwan. Uh, in Kaohsiung, for those of no, for those of you who know Taiwan a little bit, which is the second largest city in Taiwan, uh, it was a pretty sheltered and privileged life, uh, except that my parents were very absent. Both of them worked really hard, uh, but thankfully I had four other siblings that kind of looked after me and neighbors, um, and also sort of like community uh, friends and relatives. Um, but my life was uprooted completely when I was uh, around nine years old, when um, due to exigent circumstances, my family had to move out of Taiwan to California. Uh, when I moved to California, we settled in a small town in Northern California, near the capital, Sacramento, called Davis. Um, many of you might know Davis as um, the the name for one of the UC campuses, UC Davis. But that happened to be also where um, my uncle was getting his uh, PhD degree. And so he sponsored us to um, go to Davis. And that's where we found our roots um, in the United States. Did you have any English background when you moved there? I went there really with not knowing anything about the U.S. and not speaking a word of English. And it was really quite hard because the sort of economic situation that we found ourselves in uh, were quite dire. Um, And so one of the first things that I learned once I got there was to be as independent and as adaptive 
and as absorbent as possible in terms of language acquisition and getting sort of used to the environment, the new, completely different environment that was in, because it was kind of like a fight for survival and a fight for stability. Wow. Um, so did you ever have any like after school jobs or like in high school, did you do paper routes or like work at a mall? Yeah. <laughs> All of that. Um, I think that's quite the norm in um, the U.S., which is probably not so much the, the case in Taiwan. Uh, but once I got into the move to the U.S., I think uh, once I was in middle school, I started helping out at uh, my mom's restaurant. So she became a part owner of a Chinese restaurant in Davis called Noodle Express. And so all the siblings worked there, whether it's as busboy, cashier, waiter, uh, chopping vegetables. Um, I also cleaned um, apartment complexes, like, you know, um, brush the leaves, you know, cut branches. And in high school, I was babysitting for sure. And also from middle school on to, I think a little bit in high school, I had, uh, I was a paper boy. So I was doing all of that. <laughs> wow, you really were. And I didn't know this about you, that you yeah. like, kind of like practiced your skills as a kid in the kitchen. And the build the work ethic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so other than Gaga Ulala, which is the Asian streaming platform for LGBTQ content, you also founded Cremosa Awards, the Taiwan International Queer Film Festival, and you were invited in 2016 to be a judge for the Berlin Film Fest Teddy Award. What is the mission behind all of this for you? I think um, I didn't really have like a long-term mission in mind when I started this path of doing more LGBT-related work um, as an individual and also as a founder of my company. Um, it was back in 2013. Um, I was in the process of turning 40, uh, and I was evaluating what it is that I was doing or that I could be doing that could be more meaningful or be, be more impactful. And thankfully, um, after toiling away at building Portico Media as a startup for 10 years, the company was um, economically stable and it was viable for me to start to think outside of the box uh, rather than just the bottom line or keeping the company afloat. And I looked around me and I looked around my industry, which is the media sector, uh, the film and entertainment industry, and saw a, a big disconnect between what I was bringing in from uh, overseas. So one of the missions for um, Portico Media is to bring in um, content uh, in the form of linear channels uh, from overseas and representing companies such as NBCU Comcast, uh, Viacom, A&E. Uh, so we had like the History Channel, Lifetime, uh, kind of like the Bravo equivalent in Asia called Diva. Um, and uh, I was very happy to be doing this job, but what I realized was that um, contained in these linear channels in Asia that I was bringing in with the U.S. sort of global brands uh, were missing a lot of content that contained LGBT characters or storylines, um, which uh, was already starting to be quite well populated uh, in the United States and North America. And I looked at the situation and I found it quite troubling uh, because, you know, Taiwan one being um, a full-fledged democracy and me being uh, a fairly out person, uh, I felt there was something I could do in my position uh, working in the e media industry to see if I could effectuate certain change. And so 
um, I decided that the first thing, uh, the first foray that I would do stepping into sort of the LGBT sector was to put on the uh, Taiwan International Queer Film Festival and use this opportunity, which is, you know, two weeks out of the year as a way to curate, uh, search, discover and ultimately bring in and market these films to the Taiwanese audience um, to see if there was a way for people to reawaken or awaken their senses of what is possible outside of what they were being fed to on the mainstream media. And so that was something that I started thinking about in 2013. And I uh, founded the first Taiwan International Queer Film Festival in 2014. Um, and the film festival, thankfully, was very well received. And um, I also used um, the starting of the Taiwan International Queer Film Festival as a platform for me to fully come out to my parents, uh, for which um, I was quite uh, afraid whether they would uh, accept this or reject me. But ultimately, I think the parental love for one son triumphed, and they became sort of one of the largest and biggest advocates for um, parents of gays in Taiwan. And so it seemed like everything was aligned for me to pursue um, kind of raising the visibility and awareness for LGBT culture um, uh, without sort of like uh, uh, fear of rejection from family and also without fear of um, kind of uh, being isolated from the industry. And even someone so successful and so advanced in their career had this fear in the back of their mind. Oh, yeah. I think everyone has a fear of not being loved by their um, mom or father or to a certain extent disappointing them by veering off the wrong way. That is me. Yep. I, I still feel every little decision. I'm like, I think my mom's going to hate it if I quit this job. <laughs> and I, like I was telling my friend very morbidly, I was like, if they didn't exist, I would do so many different things. Like my life trajectory would probably be a lot different because I don't have to think of disappointing them. It's so strange. It's like this inherent thing that Asian children have. I don't know why um, we have it. Yeah, I think it's kind of like in our DNA, <laughs> passed down from one generation <laughs> to the next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the only way to explain it. Um, so how have you seen the queer community evolve in Asia? The question is like the community in Asia, which is very broad because it goes from South Korea, Japan to China, all the way down to Indonesia. So I'm not really an expert on all these different territories, but certainly I can talk about Taiwan specifically and Asia in general. And since I've been in Taiwan for the last 16 years, I have noticed fundamental changes in the queer community and in how the mainstream society treat the queer community. Um, and maybe we can dissect it looking at societal, cultural, and then legislative, which will refer to the Taiwan marriage equality legislation, which was passed um, in 2019. Um, in terms of societal, uh, I remember after I came back, uh, a couple of years after I came back, I attended the uh, Taipei Pride, which always happens on the last Saturday of October. And back in 2005, 2006, there were only 
couple thousand people who paraded, and many of them actually wore masks. Now, I don't mean the COVID-19 masks. I mean like uh, carnival masks where they could hide their identity, because a lot of people, although they wanted to participate in the Pride March, they were still uh, very afraid that their identity as a gay person or a lesbian person uh, could. Uh, be discovered and used against them at work or blackmailed to advantages by sort of blackmailing to uh, his or her family. Um, and also, although it was a festive sort of environment, but it was not something that I was quite familiar with when I was going to school and, and living in California. Um, and we fast forward to the last couple of years where we had um Pride marches, uh, you know, still the same time of the year, but um, last year uh, was kind of like the pinnacle because it was the celebration of the passage of marriage equality. We had around 300,000 people um, and uh, I had a float. We had Gaga Ulala, which is uh, a service that I run, had a float that ran from uh, the city hall all the, all the way to um, the presidential hall on this large boulevard. But I mean, consider it as the Market Street of San Francisco or um, the uh, Fifth Avenue of New York. Um, it was really kind of like a proud moment. And uh, I did not see a single person wear those masks that I saw um, back in 2015, 2016. Yes, people were in costumes, but it was celebratory costumes, not costumes for um, uh, camouflage or sort of like um, uh, hiding. Hiding, yeah. That gives me chills just hearing that because I remember I went in 2016 and I didn't see any masks then. I think 2016, a lot of people in beautiful costumes they were having fun. I saw a lot of parents there. Um, so completely different than what you saw in 2005. Yes. And we can just use the sort of Taipei pride as a, a moniker for sort of societal progress. You know, um, you mentioned in 2016, I think um, gradually over time, more and more people were comfortable under their own skin as part of the LGBT community and uh, were willing um, and happy um, to showcase that um, and, uh, and to live their lives as their authentic selves. And I really saw that transformation um, on this annual event, but also on a daily basis, like going to the subway and seeing, you know, a gay couple holding hands freely, um, especially amongst the young, was something that was like a teary moment for me, right? Because that was something that, you know, at 15 or 16, or even in my early 20s, um, I had fears of doing, even though I was living in one of the most liberal cities um, in the United States in San Francisco, I still had a lot of baggage. But to see young people in Taipei being so self-assured um, and so uh, confident um, is a moving moment for me. It's heartwarming for sure. Um, but this kind of goes back on what you mentioned about the cultural aspect of it. Uh, when we met even in Taiwan, when it was a few years ago, I think the older generation still had a more difficult time accepting having gay children because to me, it's still quite a reserved culture. And, you know, the thought is, yeah, someone else's kid can be gay. My neighbor's kid can be gay, but my kid is not gay. They're just going through a phase. And I think you did a lot in trying to break that stigma and that 
that idea um, by inviting your parents to be in videos with you, having them speak, um, you being interviewed about marriage equality by Western publications and the media. Why is it so important to you? And what did you hope to happen with sharing your story and what it would do? When my parents agreed to go on these uh, shows and to be interviewed by various media, I think uh, one of their big motivators was to show support for their son. Uh, the other was to, and, and I would argue the bigger motivation is also to show, show support for their grandchildren. So my kids. Um, and so during this period of time, um, I also became a uh, uh, parent to two twin boys through surrogacy in the United States. And um, this was something that I had in-depth discussions with my parents on, and they're fully on board. And when they realized that there's more at stake than just their pride or their dignity or quote-unquote shame, that they really need to step out, not just for their son, but also for the welfare of their grandchildren. I think I needed really no additional convincing um, and they were willing to uh, step out and speak out um, against kind of like the inequality in the Taiwanese society and how um, the older generation, you know, speaking to their peers, need to look at this with a different lens, not as oh, uh, gay or straight, but as grandparents and as parents. And I think that type of communication um, is very effective because um, for a long time, there were very few people who were of their sort of age bracket and their sort of like experienced age group who were willing to come out and speak about it. But once kind of like the floodgates, quote unquote, opened, I think uh, more and more parents were like, hey, you know, if they're doing that, then why am I marring my own misery instead of celebrating my children's sort of like beauty and the families they're trying to create? Um, and so more and more parents um, came out in force. Um, and that was one of the big momentous moments in getting kind of like the mainstream society to be more aware of something that they might not have been aware before and something that they might have kind of been prejudiced against without really checking in to realize that they are actually discriminating against uh, someone's child or someone's grandchildren. Honestly, Jay, I always tell you, you should just run for the president of Taiwan. You should do it in this lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not going to really happen. But <laughs> um, So if you're comfortable, tell us the story of you coming out either to your friends, your family. You mentioned you didn't fully do that with your parents until you founded the Queer Film Festival. Yeah, like almost 40. Unbelievable. So how did you have that? I don't want to say double life, but how did you have that separation of this J and then family J? A lot of LGBT people um, develop this very unique and very effective sort of like uh, skill set to have this double life out of necessity and out of sort of like 
the need to create some kind of balance um, and boundaries and barriers. And that's exactly how I treated it when I was um, in my 20s. So I first came out when I entered college and it's been a process of coming out every day up until now, right? Because you're constantly meeting new people who just out of default assume that you are heterosexual. And in conversation, because you don't want to, you don't want to hide things anymore. You're talking about what you do, did in the weekend or what you did with your partner. Then the pronouns come out as, a, you know, he instead of she and husband instead of wife. So that frequently occurring. But I think the big moments of coming out are to the ones that you care about the most. And the ones that you care about the most often are the ones that you uh, you want to protect the most. And I think a lot of gay people think that um, by not coming out, you're protecting them uh, from the, the pain or the suffering that we have suffered as a gay person. So we kind of uh, spill that over Assuming that, um, you know, because we're so uh, shameful of being gay, that if we tell our parents that uh, that we are gay, then they're also going to be very shameful um, of us and themselves. So that is kind of like the logic. Um, and it might be the case that uh, certain people, when they come out to their parents, are not they are not going to be that receptive. So I say again and again that I was very privileged to have parents that are very accepting. Um, and I don't want to speak for, you know, every household. It varies from one to another. But I think sometimes it takes that um, courage to start the conversation. And I think maybe, especially for Asian households, it doesn't need to be like sitting down at the dinner table and then uttering those words, I am gay. There are ways of going about it so that the message is delivered uh, in a way that the parents can understand the reality and can uh, understand the impact and can in their way kind of like sit through it, um, deal with it, and then come back, um, quote unquote, to the table and then see how the family and the relationship moves on. Um, and I was very afraid of that. And partly because being a sort of like an immigrant kid uh, with my parents, not um, at all times uh, by my side, um, uh, because while I was, let's say, going to high school or going to college or going to law school in California, my parents were already back in Taiwan. So I kind of had to the uh, ability to delay that coming out. And when I came back to Taiwan um, to start my company, it was like uh, dive right in uh, to a startup. And for those people who are listening who have who who's an entrepreneur or who's been in startups, you know, this is like all consuming. It's 24 um, seven. And that was another excuse to delay. Oh, I'm too busy with work. I don't have time for a girlfriend. Don't ask me about a relationship. <laughs> Well, so that's what I was going to say. Isn't that so funny? Like, is it, aren't the aunties at you know dinner asking like, oh, Jason, why isn't he married? Is he seeing somebody? Uh, like that's when the aunties and relatives ask, right? And I, I think it's especially difficult as the a son in an Asian family. Um, you get extremely heavy pressure on having children, especially male children. Um, so the cycle continues. Well, hopefully that kind of like um, demands are sort of weakening its um, 
it's cling to the Taiwanese sort of society. Uh, you know, I hope more people are seeing the value of just cherishing a child regardless of the sex. And I think that that is more and more the case. But for me, definitely hundreds, if not thousands of times, I've been asked that. And in my early 20s, I would just laugh it off or come back to, you know, whip it, whip up another joke or like, I'm, I'm too good for anybody. I'm going to be alone for, the, you know, just funny stuff just to pass that awkward moment to where you, you answer it so many times and the jokes become to be so redundant that you start to have distance with your aunties and with your parents. And you just, you kind of miss those family reunions because you don't want to be asked again and again and that's when like the relationship between the parents the immediate family um, become more distant because you don't want to put yourself through that suffering um, and you don't want to see the blank stare uh, from the parents eyes when the aunties are asking those questions so you extract yourself from those family reunions and it's it's unfortunate to a point where you're like, okay, I'm just either going to be living this life for the rest of my life, or I need to come up with a, a plan so that I can be authentic and be uh, clear of who I am to them in a way that they understand and can embrace me. And that moment came for me when I was, unfortunately, later in life at 40. Did you ever seek advice from uh, friends who were out to their parents or did you ever like Google, like how to come out to your parents? Like, is that a thing that people do? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I have Google how to come out um, when I was in my 20s. And I have consulted people who um, uh, have come out to their parents, uh, who have come out to their families to say, to see how they have done it. I think you mentioned it's such a it's such a thoughtful way though because I think a lot of people might be harboring this anger like I got to get this out like this is this is me like take it or leave it but you know you're giving advice to say hey like do it a way that your parents on their on their way can accept it and then come back to it together instead of just being like I'm never want to see you again goodbye this is my yeah. life maybe I would do that in a movie script <laughs> But I would advise that in real life. <laughs> we can write it together. <laughs> you were involved in legalizing same-sex marriage in Taiwan, making Taiwan the first country in Asia to do so. What does marriage mean to you? Well, marriage means um, a celebration of tradition and also um, modernity. Because marriage has been around for thousands of years, right? In every single culture, there is some type of legislation or some type of ceremony to celebrate union of two people. And um, But in many, many societies, especially modern society, that hasn't been the case for same-sex couples. And um, I felt that marriage was something that needed to be an equalizer. Um, so that, you know, the significant, a minor, but a significant portion of the population and especially people whom I care for uh, in my network, in my community could have those same ceremonies and same protections, including myself. And it became more exigent again when I um, have my own children, right? Because uh, I have a partner already and we're raising a family together. But why is the law creating something of an invisibility for us, whereas they can just go to City Hall and just get married? What we're asking for is really not additional protection, but just the same protection. 
And I think when a society can come around to recognize that, yes, um, the rights are already bestowed on a majority of the population, but hey, let's look out for um, you know the minorities in our segment of the population, and let's also protect them. Um, I think when a society can arrive at that moment is when I think a society will start to be great or greater. And so for me, um, getting behind uh, achieving same-sex marriage was important for the LGBT community as a whole, for sure. But I think for a societal progress um, uh, was also very important. And I thought that, that in, in sort of my lifetime, if I had the um, honor and the ability to get involved in something like that, um, uh, I would um, go all out with it and use all my might and also use all my network and abilities to sort of make that happen. It's not just something for the LGBT community. I think it's something for the greater society. I saw pictures of you that day when the bill passed, standing outside of LY on a stage, legislative UN, Take me back to that moment. Like, what was that feeling like? Like, were you, did you feel like you just like finished a marathon? Did you feel like crying? What was that feeling like? That was actually the morning of the uh, legislative vote on whether to legalize um, same-sex marriage or not. And so you can see from all our faces that we were quite stern and we were quite serious because we really didn't know what the outcome was going to be. Uh, but we also had the thousands of people who were standing behind us. This was way early in the morning, like 7 a.m., 8 a.m. in the morning, you know, missing their work, missing their school, because we all wanted to be there to show how important this legislation was and how many lives this was going to impact, um, depending on the outcome of the vote. So that was a very defining moment. Well, so that's a stern photo. What about the celebration part? The celebration part. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was raining quite a lot that uh, morning, and um, and it was quite cold. Um, but people were still sort of hunkered outside the Li Fa Yuan, which is our uh, legislative, uh, like the house, uh, waiting for the vote until late into the afternoon. I was there in the morning, and um, I think we were getting possible messages and signs from some of the legislative aides that uh, this was going to turn out quite okay, but never certain until the last moment. Unfortunately, uh, during the later afternoon when the legislation was passed, I had to return to the office. This is kind of like the anticlimactic, right? <laughs> I, was, I was like, confetti, champagne, all out tonight, party's on me. I bought a lot of alcohol and um, I brought it back to the office because I kind of wanted to celebrate that moment with my colleagues um, because they were, for the most part, they were all at work. And I, and Gaga Ulala uh, and Portico Media is one of like the five founding members of the Marriage Equality Coalition. And we couldn't all be there. All the colleagues could not be there, but I wanted to bring the party back. And I wanted to celebrate them for all the sacrifices and all the dedications, whether it's like the person doing art or the editor or the producer, or the marketer, or um, the, uh, the journalists, the writers, we, we came together as a company to sort of push forward for this legislation. So in the morning, I celebrated with all the acti other activists and all the other sort of participants at the rally uh, at the legislative event. And in the afternoon, 
I got drunk with my colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> CJ, that's why I always say you're a great boss. <laughs> you and your partner have twin boys now. Um, what's parenthood like? Because last time I saw you, I think you had like a daddy bag that was so heavy. I don't know what was in it, but it was like a satchel. It was like weighing you down. Yeah. Uh, weighing down is one word. No, it's kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm... So the kids, uh, I have two twin boys, like I said, and they just turned four end of June. Rambunctious. They must be rambunctious. They're so rambunctious. <laughs> it's like Energizer Bunny that really never runs out of energy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's that. <laughs> like constantly being sort of like there for them is something that I wanted um, to do. So it was a life choice to have children at a later stage in life. I think a lot of people are um, having children later in their life. But um, I kind of decided that uh, if I were to have children that I would reprioritize my life so that I could make time for them. So one of the first things I did was to move my home to be upstairs from my office. Oh, <laughs> what a smart move. So cutting out commute time, cutting out sort of like um, having to choose between staying later at work or coming home for dinner. And so what I'm able to do now is come to work very early, like around 6 a.m., and then work for a bit, and then go upstairs to have breakfast with the kids before they go to school. And then I can come down to the office and continue the day. And I do the same in the afternoon. Um, I also um, uh, place them in a preschool or kindergarten that is very close within walking distance to the office right. so that I can uh, pick them up and then play at the park with the other kids and then come back home. Um, they go to the upstairs to get showered and get ready for dinner. I work a little bit more and then I join them for dinner and all the book reading and all the rambunctious activities that we do yes. at <laughs> So I figured out a way to sort of like um, uh, harmoniously, I hope, <laughs> yeah. to sort of balance work life and family life and also being very uh, cautious to take some time out for myself when I need it because I need to do this the long haul. You know, I need to be there for the long distance. So I need to take care of myself as well. How do your parents feel about their grandchildren? They, they must be like over the moon, want to hang out with them all the time. Yeah, I mean, that was honestly um, a little bit of a sad sort of episode in my life in a sense that um, as the children, the kids were getting older, my parents kind of precipitously declined in physical and psychological health to a point where they become, instead of what I envisioned, oh, they can help me take care of the children, uh, I've needed to sort of allocate time to take care of them. Um, and I think this is nothing to sort of like remorse about. I mean, it's the cycle of life. And I'm seeing it in full frontal view, seeing like young life being born and flourishing and old life kind of like slowly um, closing its end in front of me. And both cycles I truly cherish. I'm stuck in the middle, not stuck in the middle. I'm in the middle. And I'm just trying to figure out how to make the 24 hours a day into 48 hours so I can find ways to sort of spend time with everybody. Oh my gosh, that makes but, me want to uh, cry. Um, <laughs> but you know, this is the same thing. Like my parents are getting older. I don't have any children yet. But every time they text me something annoying, I'm like, 
respond to this text because one day in your life, nobody, they're not going to tech be able to text you back. And like my yeah. mom called me today was like, did you see that YouTube video I sent to you? I was like, <sighs> I like took a deep breath and I was just like, just say yes, take it all in. Cause like, it's only within the last two to three years that I've realized that like, they're not going to be there forever. And it's the circle of life. Like it's just the reality. So, you know, when they asked me to change their passwords for the 10th time, I just closed my eyes, <laughs> take a deep breath and said, how? <laughs> What's some advice you'd give to gay couples looking into parenthood? Um, they may be older in their lifetime um, or they may be young couples. Uh, a couple of things. I think one is make sure you're committed to doing this um, because the child needs your love and attention for at least 18 years. <laughs> and your monetary, yeah. And your, depending on where you live. And your financial like support. And your financial support too. And the financial yeah. support and emotional support yeah. and the physical support, right? I think that's very important. And kind of like an ancillary to that is don't do it for anybody else other than yourself or yourself and your partner. Like don't do it because of pressure from your parents wanting to have like a next of kin. Don't do it because, you know, other people are doing it. Do it because you really want to be a dad yourself. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Jay? I think this was such a great conversation. You gave us such good insights onto your story um, and some great advice, but is there anything else you'd like to leave the listeners? Um, I think it would be great if your listeners could check out our LGBT movie streaming service called Gaga Ulala, um, which is uh, available globally now. And I think yesterday we just reached our 500,000 member. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely link that for you. Because, uh, you know, our mission behind this LGBT streaming service is to share stories um, and share Uh, characters uh, who are LGBT from all parts of the world. So on this platform, you can find, you know, Asians, Latin Americans, Europeans, Africans, all types of LGBT stories being portrayed. So that is something that I hope that people would have time to sort of explore. There's a free section as well. Um, and Jay, where can people connect with you? I'm on LinkedIn under Jay Lin, as well as uh, Instagram at J-A-Y-C-L-I-N or Facebook under Jaylin. I know there are probably so many Jaylins. I don't know how to help with that. <laughs> I'll hyperlink your, your profiles. Jay, thank you so much for being a guest on the Agnata podcast. You're such an inspiration and I truly believe we need more of you in this world. Thank you so much, Amy. And all the best with your podcast. Thanks for listening to the Agnata podcast. If you liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'd also love to hear any feedback you have. Feel free to email me at eggnanapod at gmail.com. E-G-G-N-A-N-A-P-O-D at gmail.com. Catch you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Eggnata podcast. If you liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. I'd really appreciate it. I'd also love to hear any feedback you have feel free to email me at eggnanapod at gmail.com. E-G-G-N-A-N-A-P-O-D at gmail.com. Catch you in the next episode.